0: Let's do this. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, welcome to the podcast series, HR Inside Out, Demystifying HR and People Management. I'm your host, Susan Nay. My guest, Brian Schramm, and I are going to chat with you about pensions today. For our listeners, I met Brian when he was working as a business manager for the West Vancouver Municipal Employees Association. At the time, I was the Director of HR and Payroll Services with the District of West Vancouver. Now, over the years, Brian and I sat across the table from one another. Brian is head of the team representing three of the union certifications. I believe that we collectively did a lot of really good work in those years, uh, both of us attempting to find workable solutions for many complex and difficult challenges. We both moved from those positions, Brian to work with the BCGEU, the BC Government and Services Employees Union, as amongst other responsibilities, their pension expert. Brian has recently retired from what ended up being over 10 years with the BCGU. In this role, he sat on pension boards, assisted with the myriad of questions that one has when trying to understand their pension plan and might be contemplating retirement. He's probably one of the most knowledgeable individuals around when it comes to this stuff. Now, I'm aware that many of you who subscribe to HR Inside Out may not be contributing to a pension plan. I'm also aware of the many questions that those of you who are often have. And we all contribute to the Canada Pension Plan, which in itself is, of course, a pension plan. So hopefully you'll find something in today's podcast informative. Brian, welcome. Thank you for saying yes to being with us here today.
1: Thank you, uh, Susan, I am happy to be here. And I would like to say too, we did accomplish a lot in, uh, in West Van together. And uh, I always remember
0: that, uh, that fondly. Me too, thank you. To begin with, hey, I'm also always interested in people's career paths. And if I remember correctly, you came to the WVMEA from the hospitality industry and then of course, after the WVMEA, you made a career shift to the GEU. So you moved from the lead position with a union that represented employees in the government, local government sector and K-12, the school system, to a very focused area of expertise, that of pension benefits. This must have been quite a change for you.
1: It was, and initially I'd wondered what I got myself into. Um, I had a real passion for pensions, um, having done pensions over the years off the side of my desk, and I felt I was ready to maybe take it on more so. Um, But I quickly discovered instead of what I thought was three layers deep, uh, was at least six layers deep. And uh, I had a lot to to learn despite my background. Uh, There's different plans, different structures, different rules. Uh, different legislation, uh, different investments, actuaries, administrative providers, all of that. Um, It it makes for a very complex field, um, but interesting. And I did enjoy it.
0: And I know I reached out to you many times over the years, knowing that you would be an excellent person to ask the questions that, that I was coming up with. I recall you... Uh, responding to questions on retirement planning, options to consider, um, many of the things that we would also get in human resources. Did you continue to do that in speaking with the GEU members and in, in the role that you did with the uh, the BCGEU?
1: Yeah, I did, but uh, not to the same degree. In terms of the GEU, um, the members' personal retirement planning, not so much, just because there's 60,000-plus members. Wow. And you know, so you're going to get a few thousand people retiring each year and you're going to get another, uh, you know, 10 of thousands of people that potentially are approaching retirement. Uh, so they didn't want me to do that. That would consume all my time. And, uh, and I'm not a licensed advisor anyway. So um, initially I was focused on the, uh, as a board member on the public service plan uh, and uh, as the secretary uh and trustee on the BCGU plan. I was on, on two plans. Um, that plan was in the process of transitioning to what's called a target benefit plan. And I was responsible for pro- preliminary work there and spit it out uh, mm-hmm. and um, I left that board, but uh, that, the legislation came in to allow that after and my successor took that over. But I did a lot of numerous pension committees. Uh, I advised and represented the GEU on other pension matters uh, and served as a representative for about 40 other unions in BC as a plan partner in the Municipal Pension Plan. Uh, and in whole, a whole significant part of my work also involved providing education to our members uh, and other groups in the plan. So that was more the focus there.
0: You, you've mentioned being a representative on the boards. Can you share a little bit about um, the, the, the function of these boards. Uh, what your responsibility would have been um, as a representative?
1: It, well, yeah. As as so, I became a uh, I acted as a trustee and a partner, which are two different roles. But the plans are what's considered uh, called a joint trustee uh, mm-hmm. ship model. Um, this happened in two thousand and one, and what that means is basically the fifty percent employer, fifty percent. Uh, member boards uh, mm-hmm. they're living boards they're not not uh, professionals they're, they're membership and and unions involved um, and they share the management of the plan and uh, these management responsibilities include administering the plan and investing the assets of the plan um, one thing that was really nice uh, that I noticed initially was that often you couldn't tell who was union government or employer representatives at the meeting the trustees uh, are not representing their organization's interests, mm. but rather all the beneficiaries. So, um, and there's, there's quite a number of plans um, in terms of the whole structure of public sector plans in BC. Um, when you go onto the administrator's website, uh, you see five main plans. There's the public service plan, the municipal plan, uh, college, and then there's the teachers and Uh, work safe for WCB and MPP teachers and PSP are by far the largest Uh, college and and, uh, WCB are smaller and they're a bit different uh, as they were created a bit differently than the others Um, all were established in the early to uh, mid-1990s and moved to joint trusteeship um, via legislation in 2001
0: Um, so fairly recently
1: Yes. In the scheme of time.
0: Yeah. I wasn't
1: aware of that. 20th anniversary of joint trusteeship, but some of the plans have been around as long as 80 years, the MPP.
0: Now, I know um, that there is a definition for the type of plans that they are. If you could talk a little bit more about that. And also, there's a variety of formulas in determining contributions and eventually the pension that someone would Receive. Now, I don't know if that's the same right across the five, but perhaps you could focus on uh, municipal and college, because I think they're fairly similar between those two.
1: Yeah, municipal, college, public service, um, teachers, uh, and, and WCB for that matter, are all what are referred to as defined benefit plans. Um, by way of example, most people are familiar with RSPs. And RSPs are cash purchase plan. You put your money in, you invest it. At the end of the day, when you go to retire, you've got your returns, either uh, gains or losses. It becomes a lump sum, and you have to put that into uh, some form of vehicle, like an annuity, a life income fund, or a RIF by the time you turn 71. Defined benefits are different. They work off a of formula. It's referred to as a formula-based pension um, so <clears throat> the money goes in and what happens is it's based on your pensionable years of service. So each full-time year is considered a full pensionable year. If you work part-time, let's say you work half-time, you would have half a pensionable year and that forms part of the formula. The second part of the formula is referred to as the accrual rate. And that is the rate at which each plan would calculate the formula uh, based on their model. Um, and each of the plans have different accrual rates. Um, and then the third thing, is based off the member's salary. And the, uh, in the case of like the uh, MPP, Public Service Plan College, they use something called best five years. It's not your last five years, it's your best five years. So if you, had, if you had a higher earning position and then you went to a lower position, let's say your health deteriorated and you need to step back and just do something for the next two or three years to kind of get through to your retirement date, your pension would still be based off those high income years, okay. right? And, and they're very good about it that, that you try to measure it off where you had your peak earnings um so they uh the pension itself the base pension is based on that defined benefit model now the interesting thing is there's various components in particular in the municipal pension plan and the public service plan and the college plan and in those plans they have indexing and indexing is actually if you get technical about it is what we call target benefited what that means is it's not actually part of the guaranteed pension it's an ancillary benefit that we do if we can afford it and it's been consistently applied Um, and there's a a fund for that to pay that but if the money ran out then the plan would have to consider how to deal with it at that point Um, so that's sort of like a target that we target trying to provide Uh, consumer price index uh, increases.
0: Okay.
1: And then the third piece is pay as you go. And that's based on benefits uh, from the uh, personal contribution from the indexing contribution from employers. So there's three pieces. And those are the levers that we have within the plan to manage and ensure we provide the guaranteed benefit. Those
0: six layers. I can yeah. see the complexity. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> especially when you're, you're you're needing to be an expert on on five different plans. Um, thank you. Um, I yeah, I actually saw that indexing um, in action. I worked um, initially uh, with an employer in the post-secondary system, um, so of course I would have contributed to the college pension plan. And I left my contributions in, and I know that the vesting rules have have changed over the years. And so then moved over to the local government sector and started to contribute to the municipal pension plan. I know if I'd withdrawn the funds, one, I would have lost the employer's portion. So that's really important for our listeners and understanding that. Uh, And that was, for me, incentive, uh, sufficient incentive to leave the, the funds invested. But I was quite surprised that actually in years that we may not have received a pay increase in in lean COLA years or lean years in, in what employers were providing as economic lifts, my pension had actually been indexed. And so when I came to actually starting to collect my college pension, it was considerably more substantial than I had thought it might be of course that was in the earlier years of of uh, my career and so of course that wouldn't that wouldn't have contributed the same monetary level as 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 later in my career can you tell us a little bit about um uh, maybe explain a little bit about vesting you've, you've talked about the indexing but um, maybe just a little bit more about vesting with the different plants and what that means
1: yeah vesting basically means that once you have enough service you are you are guaranteed to get a a pension so it used to be that you used to have in some plans uh, actually when you go way back you had to actually retire not quit and then you get a pension then it changed And for a while there, it was like if you had 10 years of service, you became vested in your plan. It moved to five years in the 90s, and then it moved to two years in the early 2000s. Now, the public sector plans, you actually vest immediately from day one. Okay. You actually will get a pension, albeit a small pension, um, unless you fall below what's called the... uh, a rule under the Income Tax Act where you are defined as a small pension, then they can pay you out. But when you get paid out, you, people can actually cash out their pension um, now. And if you're before your 55th birthday, and what they do is they look at the value of your pension, what it would be at retirement, And they do a calculation and they give you something called commuted value. Okay. And they base, and then they discount that by a, a actual factor because you're taking it early. So you can get a lump sum and people do. Sometimes they do are out of the plan and they say, I'll just take the lump sum. Um, and it's based on the value of the pension, of your actual pension. Now, if you're younger and a long way from retirement, Um, it it can be a rather minimal amount. It actually happened to me when I was uh, working for the hotel restaurant union in 1995. I was, I think I was 35 then when I left and they weren't going to comply with the new legislation in Canada. And I had about 60,000 US in that plan um, and earned a benefit with that. But when they paid me my commuted value because interest rates were 6%, and I was 35 years old, they said, basically, if we give you this $4,500 US, you will have the same amount and be able to purchase that benefit as if you continued in the plan. So it's a, it can be a big hit in terms of not getting back all your contributions because they're allowing for the growth factor. So, um, but it is based on the value of the pension and it's discounted to present day value. And people do that for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, But more to your point about the indexing growing, um, when you stop working, for example, yourself in college, you're kind of frozen in time. But the increase that retirees get is applied to your salary over that window up until the time you retire. So in other words, if you got out of the plan, and I happen to know these numbers, in 1991 and your salary was $40,000 a year at that time and you're no longer contributing to the plan, by 2011, if you added up all the increases that retirees got in that window, it amounted to about a 50% increase of their pension. So they actually top up your salary 50% similar to what the retirees got mm-hmm. so your pension would have been based on not 40,000 but $60,000 a year which is obviously a huge benefit oh absolutely and that's yeah. what that's what happened so that happens and it it also i might add happens if somebody ends up on LTD if they've applied for LTD on on uh, through their workplace when a member is injured on a job um, and they're on WCB and they're going to be off for a long time, they should apply for their LTD because if that kicks in, they will get credit as though they're working. So okay. it's a huge benefit. You not um, only get WCD,
0: that, that right. okay, the, the, the work safe and, and LTD could be a topic for a whole new podcast. Yeah. So I'm not going to take us along there, but I know how complicated that can be.
1: Um, yeah. you, and sure.
0: I do know that, that Brian, um, and it's a question I was going to ask you later on, but we did talk before we started the podcast, is uh, actually providing uh, you as the listeners with his contact information. So if that's some, a situation that you might be within, um, Brian is, is absolutely someone to, to talk to. Um, Brian, I know that the cost of living adjustments and the health benefit subsidies come out of a separate pot that's kept specifically for that purpose. I know interest rate being being really low is the money that's set aside for these costs sufficient is it a worry with regard to funding of that component of the plan? Uh,
1: the funding of, of um, cost of living adjustments and health care benefits are always a concern to trustees because you know for the main reason is they are so important to the beneficiaries as well um, so the IAA the indexing account is actually, uh, in the same pool of funds as the pension fund. However, it's set up in what's called a notional account where the, uh, and it's tracked that way, where the the uh, um, actuary of the plan tracks it uh, for the board. Uh, the MPP college and public service plan uh, that I can speak to uh, have a surplus in this notional account as a cushion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, you know, depending on the plan, the money from surplus valuations uh, may be transferred into the notional account. Uh, for example, they did that in uh, 2018 in the MPP where uh, they they trans- transferred about $500 million from the surplus. The funds also come from portion of the employer and member contributions uh, that are specifically designated to the indexing account. But more to your point about the interest rate, Uh, The reference to interest rate actually is the return rate of the plan, uh, be it uh, um, uh, a positive number or a loss uh, to these notional accounts and their surpluses and the money that's there. Uh, The PSP return last year to March 31st, 2021 was uh, 17.1%. So the notional indexing account increased by that percentage as well. Mm. Now, obviously, I mean, we're looking right now at markets being down a bit. Yeah. If, if the number came in negative this year, it would be down a little bit. So it fluctuates. Uh, that being said, like I said, indexing is always a, a, a worry. Um, we want to ensure that members receive um, some form of indexing um, and all members, you know, you can be 20, 20 years old right now and going mm-hmm. higher in 40 years and you could be retired now. So we've got to cover those generations. And uh, also, you know, for them to keep some purchasing power as inflation rises. And a lot of plans out there, you know, not public service ones, they don't have indexing. Mm-hmm. So what that is what you get for the next 30 years. Um, in terms of the benefits, the benefits are provided through a, a portion of the employer's indexing contribution uh, to the IAA, the MPP and the PSP uh, only. So for example, in the MPP, about 08 Percent of the employer's contribution goes, uh, 1% of the uh, employer's contribution in the uh, PSP goes to uh, funding those. And again, it's a notional account, it's tracked and paid. Uh, It cannot go over the annual amount taken in by law. And so it's led to a lot of unused dollars uh, remaining in the plan as a result because you have to make sure when you do your budget, you allow a cushion for mm-hmm. uh, the ability not to go over and, and breach the Income Tax Act. So um, college did away with the benefit subsidies in 2009 and they uh, focused the dollars that uh, on indexing, but they can actually purchase their own uh, group benefits. Uh, the MPP actually this January has moved to a separate trust uh, so that they can have the potential uh, ability Uh, to earn on any balance of funds that are there. And uh, that would supplement the cost of benefits going forward and hopefully provide better benefits to retirees. Um, Of course, the significant cost factors are the cost of drugs. Drugs are about Mm -hmm. 7% of the spend. The growth of retirees, uh, which is, you know, increasing uh, every year because of the baby boomers. And longevity. People are living longer. Mm -hmm. so. You have to juggle all those factors.
0: Oh, it sounds incredibly well-managed and good to hear. Uh, talking about uh, income tax, can you help our listeners with how the pension contributions that are taken from pay when Revenue Canada provides the amount that we're entitled to contribute to in RRSPs in any given year? It's sort of that the combination of pension contributions and then learning that there may be some room to be able to contribute to RSPs. How is that all calculated?
1: Yeah. So under law, people are only allowed to accrue a maximum benefit uh, of pension of 2% per year. So when you contribute to a defined benefit plan, that's taking up a substantial amount of that room. And for some people who are high income, it's taking up over that. So, um, it, but it's still within 2% of salary. So it's tied to the contributions uh, that you're allowed in RSP. So for example, you're allowed about 18% uh, of your total income in a given year up to a, a specific amount uh, that income tax says you can go to a max up. So if they calculate your pension and you've reached that max, then you're, you've used up any uh, room you could have in an RSP. But if you're a lower income person, um, you may have um, some room to contribute to RSP so you're on a level playing field with uh, those who are not in a defined benefit plan. Um, so the uh, pension adjustment sures participate participant
0: I know the word you're trying to spit out.
1: <laughs> exactly. I don't see a lot of Ps like that. It really throws you. The pension adjustment assures participants in pension plans don't exceed those thresholds. Okay. But you can use that room.
0: Okay. Thank you. I've always wondered how that, uh, that got calculated. Now, I remember being worried that all the baby boomers contemplating retirement at around the same time that I was that there might not be any money left in the fund for me to be able to receive my full pension. And I know the thousands of individuals, I don't know them, but lots of people currently contributing, I suspect that they too wonder about this. And obviously the plans are in good hands, but can you talk a little bit, you talked about the the benefits and the um, um, income adjustment, I think you called it, can you share a little bit about who oversees the, the the base plans and how the financial security of those base plans is insured? Because that's, I guess, really the most important piece.
1: Yeah, absolutely. People want to know their pension is going to be there. And it's interesting. We did a survey a number of years ago and had a focus group and you had people of of. Uh, below age 44, and you had people above age 44. And it was really interesting that that uh, almost to a person, the people below 44 were questioning whether or not there'd be any money there. And why should we trust you? We can't trust government. Government promised all this. And this is one more thing we just don't trust. And the people over 44 were saying, when can I get my pension and how much <laughs> is it going to be, right? Well, they, the, the clock kind of turned for them and said, this is important and I, I want to know when. But you're very, it's very true and, it, and it's uh, first and foremost in the in the trustees and the partners' minds that um, the plan is fully funded and the plan operates that way and so every three years it's required by law, but we also do it to make sure we're on track that the plans do evaluation and basically evaluation is simply a measure of assets against assets against liabilities
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and so we can keep the, the pension promised. So, the last few valuations uh, have had a surplus uh, for most of the plans, anywhere from uh, 105 uh, to 109%. I shouldn't say most of all of them have actually been having surpluses lately. And some of those surplus can be used to improve benefits, which they've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, some to secure a cushion against rate increases, it re- commonly referred to as the rate stabilization account, which was established in. About 2016, where basically they put a a lot of money into, and I'm talking billions in the case of uh, municipal and and public service plans, um, and they they can use it to um, mitigate against cost increases uh, or members and employers uh, in terms of their premium. And I know you recall a few years ago, we had to do that. And those came about as a result of what's referred to as an unfunded liability. And this is this gets to the heart of the matter about not being able to afford to pay. If there's a bad few years and the plan does evaluation, and let's say they have a shortfall of a few hundred million dollars, okay? And, and now they have to address that. What they do, there's agreement through the partners of the plan the trustees can increase the contributions to member and employer, 50/50. So if the if the uh, if we need to raise the contribution rate, one percent in total, then 0.5 percent will be paid by the um, members, and the other 0.5 will be paid uh, by the employers. And that gets amortized over a 15-year period, so it goes on for 15 years, like you have a mortgage in your house and then when it's paid off, uh, it would come off. So there was one in 2003 that comes off in 2018. Um, there's There was one, I think in 2009, which comes off in 2024. And then there's another one in 2012 that comes off in 2027. Uh, and then the last number of years has been surpluses. So that's how the trustees and the partners ensure that the plan is always in terms of the base benefit, hundred percent funded. And if you ever really ran into trouble, you know, they'll probably like the college did, they kind of said, okay, we'll provide benefits, but we're not putting any plan money towards that. So you still have some levers.
0: Okay. And I do recall, I remember a 1%, both
1: Um, the employer
0: and the employees had to contribute uh, as an additional premium. Let's turn to some questions that you perhaps have helped with that might be of interest to our, our listeners. What's the most common question that you would receive? Usually when, when, um, especially when
1: I do the seminars, first questions you get, how much will I get? And when can I retire? (laughs) That, That is by far the most common. That's what people really want to know. And this, and it's really interesting because, um, Despite all the education we did in providing backgrounds to the plan, at the end of the day, that's what people want to know. The other one was when they uh, find out how good the plan is managed, uh, okay. they ask voluntary contributions. Could I, could I port my RSP to the plan? And um, because of, of income tax rules um, and international tax rules uh, with the states, uh, we looked into it. Uh, a number of years ago. And it's risky in terms of the tax-free status we have with our investments in the state. So they decided not to pursue that. So
0: Okay. What about the funniest? You think of the funniest-, funniest, funniest question that uh, that you've been asked?
1: Well, when you asked that originally, I th- kind of thought about it. I thought there are no funny questions in pensions. These are pensions. <laughs> but there, there certainly was, uh, I, I did recall one uh, after thinking about it. And that was at an AGM in uh, Sydney um, over on Vancouver Island. We were having the eighth annual general meeting for the municipal pension plan and a firefighter got up and asked about pension splitting and um, when it would stop because he had been married uh, three times before he retired. And each time, because it's a marital asset, it was split. And then he got married after he retired and he's getting divorced again. And so when he got up, his question was, when will this stop? And of course the whole room cracked up because it, it answers itself. But uh, we, <laughs> everybody just couldn't believe this guy got up and asked that question. Oh so.
0: dear, okay, okay, that's a good one, thank you. Yeah. Um, actually, that's a, a good segue to my next question. Um, if you have a spouse a pension is considered a joint asset, unless your spouse opts out. So maybe you could explain a little bit about that provision. Yeah. What a joint asset is and the option, the opting piece. Yeah, under
1: the Family Law Act, a a pension is considered a marital asset. And uh, for the time a, a partnership is together, uh, either common law married or or you have a, a you're in a partner relationship um, the years that you're together um, that's jointly owned so if you're married with uh, together with somebody for ten years and you split up well and you were earning your pension all the way through that then fifty percent of that ten years belongs to the your your partner or your spouse and unless that person wants to waive it uh, and this means an official form by the um, from the pension plan and they have to sign that waiver in order to get um, that pension and uh, in full right and usually what happens is is that one spouse or the other um, the owner of the pension will likely pay out the other's Spouse in many cases because they want to collect their full pension, but if they don't, then then um, then the other uh, partner or spouse gets the half uh, when they want to retire. Now, the thing that's really important um, is that um, people need to remember this. It's extremely important because it is the law. So.
0: Okay. I can imagine that this gets very complicated with uh, past spouses and current spouses. Is it worked out through the individual separation agreement typically or or what?
1: Usually usually there is reference and it is spelled out in separate separation agreement, but you have the pension corporation has to have that form and it it should be addressed as soon as possible. I wouldn't, Encourage people whenever they know anybody involved in this or whatever, to to pass on the advice to get that completed and submitted to the pension corp so it's on record. Even if they're not retiring for ten or fifteen years, because it's not uncommon. Um, it's not uncommon to see situations where where people have to go back and try to track down their former spouse. Mm, yeah. Um, and they're very. They can be very difficult to find. Find. And I know of a situation where a spouse knew where their their um, partner, partner or spouse was, but they had said, I want nothing to do with you. And despite their appeals and despite their children's appeals and despite the pension corps appeals to the, the uh, former spouse, it uh, simply indicated he wasn't going to sign anything. He wanted nothing to do with it. And that person had no income for six months while they were waiting for this to get sorted out. They were waiting for their pension. It got delayed six months. Wow. So it's really, really important. And the other thing about that is it's really important that people specify their beneficiaries. It ties into this because what happens is if you get divorced and you don't change your beneficiary, there's been cases where people have not... um, change the beneficiary and they've been remarried for 15, 20 years, but it's their previous spouse that was listed as the beneficiaries. And and those things can end up going to court. Yeah. So get the work done, get it all clear and get it or or um, do the payout, make sure it's all looked after. So
0: important stuff. Yeah, and, and good reminders. I know when people would come to human resources and I think you face the same thing because there are a number of options about how you wish your pension paid out. People would hope that we would make that decision for them. And of course we're not financial advisors and certainly didn't want to be making um, or even suggesting things that wouldn't have been in the best interest of the individual and personal circumstances vary so substantially you had the same. I, I recall you talking to your members and, and guiding them. Did you have a list or anything? And, and again, you had you took the same position as we did that you couldn't make the decision. But I do know that you did some coaching with regard to things to consider. And so, yeah, what, did you have tools that that helped you with those dis, those uh, discussions? Yeah, I, I didn't
1: have a list per se, and I don't have one, but I pretty much know what goes into it. And I think everybody, when they stop and, and take a step back, know that when they go to retire, they're going to have their pension. They've probably got some RSP, some savings. Then they know they got the Canada pension and old age security uh, coming and maybe something else in the background or another pension. So, yeah, I would sit down with people. And it's like you said, Susan, I, I'm not a, a, a certified financial planner either. So I always tell them to go out and, and have people check over. But I would sit down and I would help them lay it out and kind of look at it and see what their numbers roughly are. And obviously, it depends on how much they want to disclose to me uh, in terms mm-hmm. of their personal financial information. And um, I always tell them that. Um, I said, I I, I, um, I can give you a ballpark of roughly what you're looking at. But I don't know, you know, if we haven't covered some of the personal aspects then it it could be different so get it checked and um but it it was helpful i mean some people would sit down and find out they're working for three or four dollars an hour and they could retire and work one or two days a month and make the same income as they were working because you you know they would take into consideration their pension their old uh you know their canada pension plan and maybe some rsp money or whatever
0: right Mm And Yeah. Um, So speaking of those options, I know that there's information sessions that are offered by the pension administrator. I think it's if you're within 10 years of retirement. And I I know 10 years seems a long ways away, but it isn't really. (laughs) What are your thoughts about planning for those retirement years and, and kind of how early should people start thinking about
1: yeah, I well, I I would say, as far as your pension goes, when when you're working in, in this arena and you have a pension, or even if you don't, you need to start thinking about it immediately. Because if you can put away money in the early years, the magic of compounding will do a lot of the work for you. Um, the more you can put away early, um, the the more time it has to grow. But in terms of the pension plan, yeah, you're right. They 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 do offer um a number of Uh, seminars and videos online. And I encourage people to go and look, but in particular, preparing for retiring, there is one that they they ask you to come the closer you are to retirement within 10, because um, it's more to do with the specific planning towards that, Mm -hmm. Um, but they have other ones that are learning about your pension that you can go to earlier. And I would encourage people to do that as well. Um, I think, you know, I, I used to offer these as well in terms of my capacity with the GEU, and I used to put on uh, seminars for members and, um, and talk about helping them prepare. But I had members younger and older in, in, in there, and it kind of, the whole session bridged the gap, including weaving in uh, some information about Canada Pension Plan and old age security, which is not done by the pension corp. pension corp sticks strictly to their workplace pension plan. These are a very good idea. They're very informative. I would encourage people to go, um, like you said, around age 50, because those mm-hmm. 10 years blow by so fast. <laughs> blink, and the next thing you know, you're coming up on another <laughs> decade. And, um, or in my case, blowing by it. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, and I even encourage people to go a couple times. Go earlier on, and start thinking about how you're planning it out and then go later on as you get within a couple of years of it to make sure you're on track and if anything's changed.
0: I think often they recommend taking, if you have a partner, taking your partner with you as well, because they probably yeah. have a lot of the, same, the similar questions. Yeah, We've, yeah. Talked, we've talked about CPP in old age. Um, I know that in some of the pension plans, there's what they call a bridge clause that supplements the Canada pension plan. Can you just talk a little bit about the bridge clause? And I know that there've been some changes that have impacted a few of the plans.
1: Yeah, so, so what the bridge is, is you have to go back in history because these plans used to be what's called a 2% plan. Um, that was the benefit that was paid Paid out when people retired, roughly two percent of earnings. So in 1966, when they came in with the Canada Pension Plan, it was approximately about a 0.7 uh, percent benefit. So being a sole trustee, the government said, "Well, if you're going to, if we're going to have to pay that, and and members are going to get that later on, then we're only going to pay." Um, a a portion, like a a smaller amount, like 1.3%, as opposed to um, the full 2% um, on earnings. And I use the term up to the YMPE, yearly maximum pensionable earnings, which is around $60,000 this year. Back then it was probably around $2,000. But, um, because that's all you pay your your, your CPP on, after a certain amount, you don't pay it anymore. So, and then they kept the 2% benefit after that. So the bridge was designed to pay you that 0.7%, roughly, up to age 65, when at that time, um, old age security and Canada Pension Plan kicked in. Of course now, uh, Canada Pension Plan kicks in at age 60 if you want to take a reduction, so it is slightly different. And and some people actually collect their pension, the bridge and the Canada Pension Plan um, at age 60, but of course their Canada Pension Plan is less because they're collecting it earlier. Mm So so that um, is something that people really have to consider, um, how their bridge impacts them. With the changes to the plan, the bridge is no longer um, there in terms of, of the plans, basically because they've moved the money that paid for the bridge in the early retirement options to Increase the accrual rate to a flat accrual rate. You don't have a two-tier rate anymore. It used to be 1.3 below the YMPE and 2% above. Now, for example, in the MPP, it's uh, 1.85% flat accrual rate for everybody. Uh, Public service just moved this month to a 1.95 flat accrual rate. College is 2%, teachers, I think, a 1.95. And the reason they did that was because Pensions were being eroded by um, this dual calculation because salaries, as everybody knows, haven't increased that much in the last 10 years, maybe Mm -hmm. 0.5 or, you know, some years, no increases and stuff. But the YMPE was going up. So more and more of the salary of people that were higher income were being calculated at the lower rate. So we had to do something about that erosion. and, And so that came into play. When people collect the bridge, uh, sorry, when people collect their pension is also uh, important based on this because um, everybody's situation is different, and that has to be considered um, if they're fit, um, you know, health-wise, if if their financial health is good or or not so good, uh, and other two other factors, which. You can't give one blanket answer because it's going to be different. Mm-hmm, for everybody. Mm-hmm. But likely the biggest factor is going to be uh, financial uh, and how um, things are impacted uh, going forward in terms of taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're drawing your pension and your um, bridge, and then um, you start collecting your CPP, it's going to push up your income. Yeah. right if you take it early so um, people really have to consider their longevity their health and their financial because if you take your CPP early at 60 it's a 36 percent reduction mm-hmm. from get at 65 it's based on a full Canada pension at age 65 so if you take it earlier you get a reduction if you wait till later you get an increase of about 7.1 percent. Um, same thing actually old age security actually increases after 65 too if you wait but it's it's all depends on whether or not you expect to live longer or not right, right? unfortunately yeah. we're not you know we're not we don't know when we're going to go but if your family's got you know people that lived to 95 a lot yeah
0: you may want to wait to take your Canada pension and get more you know yeah. some and important and- some of that list of important considerations whether it's your pension, or taking your OAS or CPP. Yeah. Yeah. So again, the t- even the timing of the CPP and OAS are complicated. Yeah. Some and, people. And, yeah. Sorry.
1: I was going to say some people were upset that that they felt the the bridge has been eliminated going forward. By the way, any bridge people have earned up to the change date is still being paid out when they retire. It doesn't matter if they retire five or ten years after, fifteen years after, that portion will still be paid. But what they did in the plan was both plans implemented additional um, formula for the temporary, what's was called a temporary annuity, which is something you can do within when you're selecting your choice for your pension. Mm -hmm. You can take more money up front and less later, but it used to be you could only take 100% of the temporary annuity. Now the public service has a 50% option. So if you want to front-end load your pension, you can make that choice. MPP has the um, like a 25%, 50% or 100% option. So that if you decide you want to travel a lot when you're younger and get more money now because you figure your expenses will be less later, you can do that. So you can really just put the bridge back in yourself through the temporary annuity.
0: Okay, lots but- of, lots of options. Yeah, and I, I do recall, though, I think there's five or six options that are typically on the website. When you're looking at your personal information, yeah. you can have a whole bunch of different variants of those, but you would just be working with the pension corporation if you're looking for a variation on what's been presented to you. Yeah, there's, there's
1: I think usually, usually by the, when on the website, you're right, there's five or six. But when you get your actual um, choice to retire, I, there's like nine of them. And um, basically they're, they're tied to whether or not, one, you wanna have joint life pension or a single life. Joint life is usually for people who are uh, couples or married, but sometimes they're better off to do a single as opposed to a, a joint life because the other person has a full pension too, right? So you may end up getting more money that way. You're going to have to sit down and look through your own personal circumstances. And uh, the other thing is whether or not you want a guarantee period on the joint life, for example, or what percentage. They give you a 60-40 estimate, which is basically means that the pension, person who earned the pension gets more while they're alive. And if they pass away first, the spouse or partner will get the, the balance of their years. They will get a pension, but it will be less than what, the pension earner got. But you can choose uh, an even split so the amount never changes, and that surviving spouse will get the same amount for the rest of their life, it doesn't change. Or you can make it more or less, you can choose a 70-30, 80-20, whatever works for you in your circumstance.
0: And my recollection where there are benefits plans attached, that as long as the partner is receiving some pension income, that they still have access to the, to the benefits plans. Has that changed?
1: No, you, can, you have access, yeah. And, um, and they can purchase for their spouse or partner um, benefits for them as well. And like I said, if you've got 10 years or more, for example, in, in uh, the municipal plan, um, your extended health care is subsidized 75%. And in the public service, it's actually subsidized 100%. You don't have to pay for your premiums.
0: That's just for the member though, right? Not for yep. the partner, the, the, Correct. not for the, the uh, partner's coverages. Yep. Before I forget, I wanna put a plug in for the retirees associations that have been formed. And I believe those are with college, municipal and public service, I believe has got one as well. I think they, they meet on a quarterly basis and it's a really wonderful way to keep current on what's happening in the pension plan. Um, they bring in interesting speakers. A lovely way to bump into colleagues that you might have worked with over the years who are also now retired. I remember bumping into Kathy, your right hand um, from, from your years at the WVMEA. And also if you're interested in volunteering some time, I know that they're always looking for someone to uh, do call outs, help with the coffee at the meetings, um, run run for board positions and, and so on. So just wanted to put that plug in. When you retire, you get notification from the pension association. I think it's a one-time, pretty minimal membership fee, and um, yeah, it's it's quite lovely.
1: Yeah, I think that they, they each have a, uh, They might each have an annual fee.
0: Is it annual? Okay.
1: Yeah. So I think it's like twenty-five it's, bucks a year, or yeah, something like that. It's
0: it's pretty minimal. Um, Brian, you've you've kind of alluded to it. I'm just going to go back to some questions on the plans. But I remember you sharing with me that there were some pretty major changes coming with the municipal pension plan. Are you, and I think they were kicking in in January of this year. Can you just kind of give us an overview of, of what that looked like? And you have kind of a little made little mentions of it through what you've shared so far, but I think there's more. Yeah, I think
1: it's better if I can, if I summarize it so people get a picture of the That would be great, whole- thank you. And, and just to add that the uh, uh, public service went through this in 2018 um, and they've done some modifications this year as well, but uh, for the municipal plan and because it's going to cover sort of what the other plans have done as well, municipal plan was last to the party uh, because basically the, the, the largest and they're the most complex of plans with almost a thousand employers and 300,000 plus members. And the, the, Diversity is mind-boggling and trying to appease everybody is, well, you're not going to do it, but you try to find <laughs> yeah. the best route. So this year, um, based on partner discussions that have been going on, I actually was on that committee and I, I was on that committee s- since uh, 2010. So this took, this was like 11 years in the making. Wow. Yeah. And um, it, it's, it's been a lot of work because Everything had to be analyzed and, you know, the communications to the partners and stuff. So January 1st, 2022, the uh, municipal plan, but the other plans have done this already, moved from a a two-tier accrual rate. uh, They had a 1.3% accrual rate below the YMPE and 2% above the YMPE to a flat rate of 1.85%. Now they did this through the, um, uh, eliminating the rule of 90, which was the age plus years of service adding up to 90, providing you an unreduced early retirement. Um, the bridge um, going forward and the uh, temporary, sorry, <coughs> sorry, and the bridge, um, so those will remain on past service. For service okay. you had prior to January 1st, you don't lose those. Okay. But going forward, um, for example, let's say somebody earned $55,000 a year. They would only be eligible for 1.3% pension under the old system. They're now going to be eligible on all future service for 1.85%. Wow. That's a 46% increase mm-hmm. in benefit. Yeah, that's fabulous. That's huge, right? And keep in mind that even if you earned over, let's say you're $90,000, you only got the 2% on the amount above the YMPE. So you, in actual fact, you're getting that bump up on your lower income earnings as well. And the people that were had that 2% benefit above are, are now at 1.85, that came down, but they're not paying the premiums for those either, mm-hmm. right? So they're, they're, for the most part, it's very few people that will be, for lack of a better word, negatively impacted. You got people up there you know, that are making $200,000, $300,000. They're, yeah, they're, they're not gonna make up for it because the long and the short of it, lower income people were subsidizing higher income people or the people that uh, could afford to go early because um, the money had to come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm benefit so because they weren't using it the people that were using it were getting the benefit and and the easiest explanation of that is if i retire at 55 and you retire at 65 with exactly the same amount of earnings service and everything i've already collected my pension for 10 years mm-hmm. plus and if we live to the same age yeah you know it's pretty easy to see who's going to come out better so So you've got that aspect. Um, The other thing that they've done is they've established a joint benefit trust because we were always faced with that budgeting of of a a step process over a five-year window to make sure we didn't go under the, uh, make sure we stayed under the threshold we had to spend. But in the early years of that, we didn't spend, you know, 50% of the money because we had to watch that we didn't go over the amount we had at the end of it. So now that money's all going to be going into the plan. Plus it was provided and funded with a hundred million dollars in seed money because the benefits that get paid every year are in the tens of millions of dollars to beneficiaries. So um, it's important that that was, that was funded and that came out of the the contributions, you know, that are there from uh, the indexing and the, um, and the, benefit contributions that Mm -hmm. come up so uh, i talked about the temporary annuity structure changed from just a flat 100 percent to 25 50 or 100 percent the um there also was a reduction in the uh the reduction rate is being done on an actuarial basis now so it used to be the reduction rate if you went before 60 was three percent right per year that was subsidized the truer cost is around 6.2%. So they've Ooh. built that in now. You can still retire at age 60 unreduced. But if mm-hmm. you go a year early, it's reduced 6.2%. But the value of your pension is the same. It's just
0: spread over more years. Okay, and that's a, that's that percentage is per year of going early, right?
1: Yeah. Between so, 55 and
0: 60?
1: Yeah, so if you go two years early it, on the, on the um, portion that you go from um, after 2022, it's gonna be re- reduced 12.4%. Okay. Okay.
0: Okay, thank you. Just um, wanted to clar- clarify that point. The other, the other thing that came into that was future surpluses.
1: And with future surpluses, 50% is gonna to go to the rate stabilization account automatically to a threshold that the partners are working on now. And 50% is gonna go into the IAA account, which, which is going to assure that those are funded uh, in a manner that should protect all beneficiaries uh, and protect against rate increases. Because quite frankly, um, you know, the, the rates were getting to the point where both members and employers were saying enough, like this is taking a big Chunk of my yeah. money. I need the money now. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: By providing these um,
0: reserves,
1: we're protecting the beneficiaries, yeah. the partners, and the members.
0: So yeah, well, those are great, great yeah, changes. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, and nice that you've summarized them because you've spoken about some of them throughout. Uh, you're answering some of the other questions, um, Brian. What haven't I asked you that might be helpful for those contemplating retirement? Something that uh, I might not have thought to list on my questions for you? Yeah, I, I would say um, something to keep in
1: mind uh, for your listeners and people that they might encounter is the, the pension plans, especially the public sector pension plans, you can transfer your pension. So right. if you change jobs. Let's say I worked in healthcare and went to work in direct government. So you could have been working in HR in um, in the municipal sector, and then you've got a job in in, uh, government in one of the offices, which is, and they have HR, and you're now a member of the public service plan. You can actually transfer your municipal pension to the public service and they will put them together so that your years and your benefits and everything are merged together. They do it actuarially, so, depending on which is better and what what the the, uh, the dollar value of each is, you may get a few more years or a few less years uh, in the plan you're going to. Um, but it's a good way that you may, uh, let's say you started late in your career and you've got a few years in, you started at 50 and you you got like five years into the municipal, then you flipped over to provincial government and you've only got seven years there. Well, you didn't qualify for the maximum subsidy on benefits in either one. But if you had switched within two or three years when you went over, by the time you were done, you would have had 12 years in the public service and then you would have had the 100% subsidy on extended health when you retired, if it's still
0: there, right? Because they're not guaranteed, but, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, it's now, so. Just before you said within two or three years, is there a a window that you have to make that decision? Yeah, usually within three years, you've got to make that decision.
1: Yeah, so you're gonna make it fairly early. So um, conversely, we had people in emergency health services who are with emergency health for close to 30 years, Um, And in a couple of years ago, they went, um, sorry, they had, and they were in public service, but they went to municipal. Some of them kept and were grandfathered into public service, which they they would be negotiated into. But some of them went on to municipal because, and they left them separate because they basically were get a full pension out of the public sector. And now they're going to pick up more on the municipal end because all of them are capped at 35 years of service. So they could theoretically have 30 years in the public service and then 10 years in the municipal.
0: So again, like everything else, taking some time to understand the different options available to you. Exactly. Give the the pension corp a call, explain your particular situation. And in the show notes, I will put the websites for uh, the, the public service pensions that we have spoken about on, on the podcast so yeah and and that that leads to my next point is
1: that plan ahead which is exactly (laughs) what you just covered right (laughs) learn about pension how it works and you know what decisions you have to make um what decisions trustees are making um well in advance so you can make your long-term goals um the other thing to keep in mind um just to touch on is if employer members are part-time they must be given the opportunity to enroll once they meet um, the plan and PBSA's minimum requirements um, or they must sign a waiver to opt out. And if they don't and they come back later uh, and they were eligible a year or two or three before, the employer would be held responsible for those contributions. So it's really important that's touched on. And in the, for example, the MPP, uh, if they earn 35% of the YMPE for two consecutive years, they need to be offered that opportunity right away. And if public sector, actually, if they earn 50% of the YMPE in the first year, um, they would have to be offered that. Uh, if they didn't meet then, they would re- revert to the two years, 35%. Okay. Um, purchase of service for various leads, unpaired, unpaid leads. Right, yep. Buy your time. People, by the time they hit 55, they're, they're asking when can I go not, uh, uh, and, and wish they bought that time back.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Of course, maternity, paternity, some leaves are, are um, uh, covered under the Employment Standards Act, and therefore, if the employee pays them, the employer has to pay them, and employees should be well aware of the fact that they need to make that choice, and most do because they want their benefits through um, mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. leave while they're on maternity. So, And WCB and LTD, um, If people know that absence is going to be lengthy on WCB, make sure your employees apply for LTD because once they're eligible for LTD, they won't receive any money necessarily, but they will get credited as though they're working in the pension plans. And that means they're getting years of service applied to their pension, which is a great benefit within the plan.
0: Actually, Um, Brian, can I just ask a question? because I remember there being pensionable service and there's contributory service. Correct. Can you do a quick explanation of the difference between those two? Yeah.
1: Pensionable service is the actual time you worked. So if I worked, if, if I'm in a 35 hour a week job and I work 52 weeks a year, 35 hours, I've worked one full pensionable year and I will get credit for one pensionable year. And of course, the pension at the end, one of the factors that goes in is the amount of pensionable years you have. If I worked part-time and worked 17 and a half hours a week for a full year, I would have one half of a pensionable year or 0.5. So my statement would, would show is that. And at the end of my years, I might add up and I might have 30 years of contributory service because I used to contribute every single month.
0: But
1: so I, that's the money that you're putting in. Yeah, I think, yeah, the money going in, it's been going in every month, but it only okay. adds up to 15 pensionable years of service. Okay. The reason that the contributory years are important is it's done in terms of, it used to be very important in terms of um, figuring out things like eligibility around benefits and figuring out um, the formula of 90 and stuff like that. So it, it, it was applied in a different way than the pensionable service. The pensionable number is for calculation of your pension, so.
0: Okay. Um, any tips for other pension plans um, or people with no plan, but making contributions to RRSPs, any thoughts?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, first and foremost,
1: start planning and saving. Uh, think about this when you're younger. Um, the general thought is that if that people that earn less than forty thousand roughly a year would be better probably to have a, a, ta- a tax free savings account or a TFSA rather than an RSP because one, you're not paying that much in taxes anyways, and one of the the ideas behind the RSP is to defer your taxes. so if if you don't have much to defer, then you may be better off to put it in a TFSA because the benefits, the money that flows from that is tax-free when you retire or, or whenever you take it out. Whereas in an RSP, it's 100% taxable. In other words, when you get it, whatever you earned, they'll tack that right onto the top. And that's why say, you know, they say some people that are high income earners, um, uh, when they retire, their income is so high, they're literally paying about 60%. On those uh, RSP dollars, which means it wasn't a very good deal at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, so so people should think about that. Higher incomes, of course, may want to utilize the RSP for tax deferral purposes. Um, check and see the financial person you're work working for uh, is a fiduciary, and what I mean by that: a fiduciary is respo- under law is required to represent your best interests. Okay. And a lot of times you'll see on their, uh, you know, I'm a financial advisor or a financial advisor. Okay. And if it's spelled with an O, it means that basically they're working for themselves and they're going to do potentially what's in their best interest. I.e. if it's a similar mutual fund, but their retainer or their kickback is better on, on mutual fund A than B then they're pro- they might suggest that because basically the return is going to be about the same, but it's the fees coming out that you might not be aware of. And that would be my, as, whereas if it says advisor, they have a fiduciary responsibility uh, to represent your best interests. And basically you can have legal action if, if you find out they're not, um, which, um, which leads me into the, um, Financial advisors fill a vital role, right? They do help you plan, they can assist you um, a lot because this is very complex. Uh, But they get paid via uh, assets under management. So what you wanna make sure you know at all times is what the MER is, management expense ratio. Find out what the fees you are paying uh, to have them help you and manage that money because they take that money off the top every month which means that money's not working for you and that makes a significant difference mm-hmm. like 20 to 30% of your nest egg at the end of the day um, if if the fees are high so make sure you know that i mean um, those would probably be the key ones that i would say okay. to people be very
0: mindful of that so working with a financial advisor er when you, when you're when you're trying to figure this stuff out yeah, and a lot of them are, are,
1: are um, financial advisors um, because a lot of times when you go into a, uh, like for example, an insurance company, they're selling you their funds a lot
0: of the times, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So just be aware of that. Okay, so- no, great point, Brian. Yeah, I wish I, I wish I'd known that. Now I'm, I'm almost afraid to look.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, now they, they come around. They have to put it on your statement now. Oh, okay. But- but there's another point. Watch out if it's gross fees or net fees. Uh, you, your return is gross of fees or net of fees. Often they put gross of fees so it looks like a good return. But in a matter of fact, uh, you know but it, when you actually take out the fee, it could be one and a half percent less. So that's where it's important.
0: So, the man, the man with the wealth of information. Oh my goodness. I, uh, I wish I'd, I wish I'd talked to you a little bit more, uh, for my, my planning. Any thoughts on offering your services to, or someone who people could contract with to help them not as a financial advisor or, or, uh, but just someone who really understands these pension plans and, I'm thinking also organizations. I remember at BCIT and we bring someone like yourself in to talk about the college pension plan and it was very helpful. And yes, there were lots of people who wanted to know, but I want my specifics talked about, please. Um, any thoughts on on offering those services, both to individuals and to potentially organizations offering retirement planning processes?
1: Yeah, I am. I am starting to think about it. I've been off about nine months now. And initially uh, I just wanted to do nothing. Um, off, often that you've retired. Yeah. Off, <laughs> yeah off, in terms of retired. Exactly. It was like, you know what? I, I, I'm going to go be a vegetable for a while. Actually, I, I literally went and became a vegetable. I went out in the garden and planted, uh, uh my wife would say acres, um, <laughs> so we don't have acres, but I took up a large part of the, the, the property oh, good for you. Um, and uh, I really needed to do that. And, and people find that out actually when they retire, it's like, holy cow, I committed a lot of energy to this. Yeah. So I'm thinking about it. And uh, yeah, I would, I, I've reached a point where I consider opportunities. I actually um, did a session, did sessions, I think a couple of times at BCIT um, for those people as well. So I am, uh, I am familiar with it and uh I, Yeah, I'm certainly not going to go back and do it (laughs) (laughs) full-time.
0: Well, I am thrilled to hear you say that. And you and I will uh, find out what the uh, appropriate email and uh, phone contact information are, and we'll make sure that those go on the show notes. So if anyone's interested in reaching out to Brian. Um, And again, the pension plans themselves do offer some assistance, but not the individual, um, somebody taking a look and going through the different options with you. Um, I don't think they do anyways, but something that you can look into. It is good to get help with this.
1: Yeah, they they, they in general re- um, refer people to uh, financial advisor, advisors for fi- final decisions. Dis- they'll help give them guidance to understand what the options are. Yeah. But they won't make a recommendation. They.
0: Well, here. for the same reasons that we've, we've spoken about earlier, exactly. you know, the, the personal circumstances. Holy mackerel, thank you. I know I've always appreciated being able to come and ask you questions, especially when there was something that is like, oh, my goodness, but I know who I can, I can call. Um, you've always been there for people and really appreciate your making time to be here today for our listeners. It is time for us to bring the podcast to a close. Um, thank you for agreeing to, um, allow us to put your contact information on the show notes so that people can reach out to you for our listeners. We really hope that you found today's session helpful and can take, uh, a nugget or two of learning away from you, uh, ER versus OR for, for that financial <laughs> advisor. And oh my goodness, please make sure that your beneficiary, not just for the pension corp, but, um, You've also got beneficiary that you would have notated in life insurance and um, perhaps other um, benefits plans. Uh, Just make sure that that information is up to date with your employers. It's Susan and Brian signing out. Brian, thank you. Um, One last opportunity. Anything else, last?
1: I I would just like to say thank you very much for this um, opportunity. I've always really enjoyed uh, working collaboratively with you that that's sort of been our history and uh, here we are at it again so thank you and um um yeah and we'll talk soon and uh it was great it's very interesting
0: i look forward to that too and and thank you yes my sentiments exactly uh time for us to go uh thank you again hopefully uh, we'll see you again with the next podcast and um brian i can't wait to have a coffee with you and, and have you complaining about how very busy you are (laughs) so much for retirement. Take care, everybody. Well, we've reached our destination for today. Time to lower those wheels and prepare for landing. Thank you for joining me. If I said something that resonated with you, please subscribe to the podcast and to share it with others. It would be awesome. If you also took the time to provide a review, whatever your favorite social media sites are, If you have a question or an area that you hope I'll cover in a future session, please send me a note, either to my website, www.effectingchangefromwithin.com or to my email, susanjanae at gmail.com. I look forward to our next time together. In the meantime, soar high. I believe you can. Susan signing off. Thanks again for joining me.